Pelvic Rehab Research Podcast. My name is Becca Bissadolshensky, and I'll be your host guiding you as we take a deep dive into all things pelvic floor and research-based. Whether you're a pelvic newbie or a seasoned clinician, I'm here to help busy therapists listen through the Women's Health Study Guide. So if you're studying for the Women's Certified Specialist Exam or just interested in learning more about pelvic health research, we've got you covered. And welcome back. This is week two, article four, the biomechanical measures of neuromuscular control and valgus loading of the knee predict anterior cruciate ligament injury risk in female athletes. This is by Timothy Hewitt, Gregory Meyer, Kevin Ford, Robert Height, and Angelo Colissimo. I think this was the first article that I really struggled to figure out how to shorten for the title name. Just a little bit of a mouthful. Um, The goal of this article was to determine if neuromuscular control and knee valgus when joint loading is a cause of increased female athlete risk for ACL injury. Female athletes participating in high-risk sports actually have an increase in ACL injury at a four to six-fold greater rate than male athletes. So these researchers took 205 female athletes who participate in differing sports. Those sports varied from soccer, basketball, and volleyball, and prospectively measured for neuromuscular control using a three-dimensional joint ankle and joint moments using jump landing tasks. They used an analysis of variance as well as linear and logistic regression to isolate predictors of risk in athletes who subsequently ruptured their ACL. Dynamic valgus, which was what they were looking at for the three-dimensional kinematics, was defined as the distal femur toward the distal tibia away from the midline of the body. So as we know as PTs, that's a combination of femoral adduction, knee abduction, and ankle aversion. Subjects were composed of those 205 female athletes in high-risk sports for ACL tear, as mentioned before. So that was soccer, basketball, and volleyball. What's interesting is that the highest-risk sports have changed since this article came out, or at least a few extra research articles and studies that I looked at. Statistics indicated that the highest percentage are within soccer as number one, basketball at two, and lacrosse at number three. I don't often treat ACLs anymore, so I really paid attention to these female athlete research articles and reviewed a little bit more on MedBridge courses. My sister-in-law also tore hers playing lacrosse and rehabbed like a champ, so it was interesting to kind of re-review these mechanics, best practice, surgical techniques, etc. MedBridge is really a godsend for these topics like female athlete, lymphedema, and osteoporosis if you don't treat them as commonly. Okay, anyways, so nine of the 205 female athletes ruptured the ACL, and this was confirmed via arthroscopic surgery or by MRI. Seven of those were by playing soccer, while two of those were by playing basketball. The ACL injured had an average age of 15.8 years old, an average height of 5 feet and 5.75 inches, and an average weight of 135.5 pounds. In comparison, the uninjured players had an average age of 16.1 years old, an average height of 5 foot 4.61 inches, and an average weight of 130.3 pounds. So the uninjured were a little older, a little shorter, and a little bit lighter in weight. This study occurred over the summer of 2002 and 2003, as well as during fall of 2002. Athletic trainers submitted weekly team and individual injury reports, including the number of practice and competition injury exposures. From initial biomechanics assessment to ACL injury, it was an average length of five months. 
So they had these females perform a drop vertical jump from a surface that was 31 centimeters tall. Feet were positioned at 35 centimeters apart. And then once they jumped down, they were told to immediately perform a rebound maximal vertical jump with both arms up. This was to kind of mimic a basketball jump. Three trials were recorded and information was gathered by the ground force plates and motion analysis systems. Before testing, these females had markers placed on different anatomical locations. As you can imagine, being that this is an ACL research study, the majority were at the hip, the knee, and the ankle. Only one of the placements was on either side of the distal AC joint. Knee markers included medial, anterior, and lateral. Hip markers included anterior and lateral. And ankle markers had an anterior, posterior, medial, and lateral. There was also one in the middle of the thigh. So we're looking at that femoral adduction, the knee abduction, and the ankle eversion that causes that midline collapse into a dynamic knee valgus. So let's go over the results that they reported regarding mechanics for those drop vertical jumps. These researchers found that the knee abduction angles were significantly different in the injured and the uninjured groups, both at initial contact and at maximal displacement. Females whose knees went on to experience an ACL injury had an 8.4 degree greater knee abduction angle at initial contact and a 7.6 degree greater knee abduction at maximum impact as compared to the non-injured had during landing. Correlations were also found between knee abduction angle and peak vertical ground reaction force in those who injured their ACL. Those weren't found in the non-injured athletes. So maximum knee flexion angle was 10.5 degrees less on average in those who had injured their ACL than those who did not. The injured group also had a greater stance phase peak external knee abduction moment compared to the uninjured females. The injured cohort also had an increase in vertical ground reaction force by 20% and a 16% decreased stance time than that of the uninjured athletes. Additionally, the injured cohort demonstrated differences between their dominant and their non-dominant legs, with six of the athletes injuring their dominant side and three tearing their non-dominant side. So the difference being a side-to-side knee abduction moment difference, 6.4 times greater in the ACL injured side. So these research confirmed in this study that the females who sustained an ACL injury demonstrated altered neuromuscular control characteristics as noted by differences in their lower limb mechanics when performing jump landing techniques. Specifically, they were looking at that dynamic valgus and that knee abduction loading. The link between valgus loading and ACL strain isn't a new theory prior to this article. There have been a lot of cadaver and in vivo research demonstrating this. Knee valgus angles and moments were primary predictors of ACL risk. So those valgus torques were noted to increase the anterior tibial translation and the ACL load by several fold. They don't know any sagittal plane variables that served as predictors. Most notably, they were looking at the hip and the knee flexion for that. So this research is consistent with prior research that supports that valgus torques, including the hip, the knee, and the ankle joints were the sole predictors of peak landing forces too. It's been postulated that those excessive dynamic valgus could be caused if an athlete is not properly aligned or has unusual foot placement at landing. These findings confirm and suggest that athletes should avoid those positions during landing, cutting, or decelerating. There's also some gender-based disparities that are a component of these injuries and why females are at a higher risk, that four to six-fold greater risk, if anyone remembers. So let's discuss the differences causing these excesses in dynamic valgus. The researchers are trying to blame two things, insufficient neuromuscular adaptation and muscular control. So insufficient neuromuscular adaptation can look like the adductors and the flexors of the knees having ineffective 
contraction patterns. Proper muscular contraction during these tasks can decrease the dynamic valgus laxity of the knee by threefold. The researchers also discussed that more equal distribution of forces transmitted across the medial and the lateral knee joint could decrease landing forces and protect that ACL more. I think it's important to note that they discussed pre-programming in order to adopt safer movement patterns and reduce injury risk during landing, pivoting, or unexpected perturbations. Coactivation of the quads and the hamstrings is not only supposed to protect the knee joint, but it's also supposed to decrease that anterior translation of the tibia and the dynamic knee valgus. If the hamstrings are weak or slow to react, the quads may also be reduced to provide that net flexor moment. Deficits in hamstring strength and contraction of the hamstrings can limit the potential for the muscular co-contraction needed to protect the knee ligaments. So this may appear as that quad dominant profile in female athletes. So taking these into account clinically, we're going to be looking at the importance of a balanced co-contraction, improving the coronal plane control, and decreasing those dynamic valgus forces. Significant alterations to movement biomechanics, lower extremity strength, and recruitment patterns are possible and encouraged. They noted that further research needs to be done in order to determine when those training programs have been implemented. I'm willing to bet that since 2004, that's been done. I also think it's important to note some of the limitations of the study. They only looked at soccer, volleyball, and basketball players. Some controlled factors that pelvic PTs are probably immediately thinking include things like menstrual status, blood hormone levels, as well as foot pronation, quadriceps angle, and a femoral notch width. We know that neuromuscular parameters seem to be a major determinant. Also consider that these knee valgus patterns may develop over many years, and they're looking at a small group of female athletes for a small period of time. The excess valgus may take years until that ACL ruptures, so more of a longitudinal study would be helpful for research like this, and this article mentions that that's something that they plan to conduct. Repeated ACL ruptures are more likely to occur in individuals with similar kinematics and kinetic profiles that have already experienced an ACL rupture event. All right, so it's take-home point time for everyone who zones out like me. Number one, it appears that increased valgus motions and movements at the knee joint during the impact phase of jumping landing tasks are key predictors of increased ACL injury. Two, the biomechanical measurements are necessary in the future for screening and prevention studies aimed at lowering those ACL injuries in females. And three, future research is needed, and honestly, some has probably been performed. There's so much research on orthopedic conditions like ACL tears and ruptures. We know that they affect females more than males and that biomechanics play a significant role. Prevention and prehabbing is super important. And unfortunately, we don't usually see those athletes until they're post-surgical. So our next article is by Hewitt et al. as well, who's leading this three-article ACL crusade for us in week two. This is just part one of the ACL injury in female athletes published in 2006 next time. So I hope to see you guys listening there. Bye, guys. Bye.